who you are defines how you build. This is Thought Leaders Revisited, a special summer 2020 edition of our Entrepreneurial Thought Leaders series. During this summer of uncertainty, we're inviting some of the most influential past ETL speakers to join us for a series of new conversations about innovation, leadership, and especially finding opportunities in the midst of a crisis. On this episode, we're joined by Bonnie Simi. Bonnie is the president of JetBlue Technology Ventures, the venture capital arm of JetBlue Airways that invests in and partners with early stage startups that are inventing the future of travel and hospitality. Welcome, Bonnie. Thank you. I'm excited to be back. Oh my sort goodness. Of, it's neat so to be virtually at Stanford, uh, even if I'm on the other side of the, of the country right now. Well, I have to say, your talk is one of the most inspiring that I have ever listened to. Um, it just blew my mind from the moment you got going. So what we're going to do today is we're going to take some of the old clips. In fact, I have so many, it was hard for me to choose. Some old clips to play and then reflect on them. So I want to start with one about when you were 14 years old. I think it was 14, right? Yep, yep. I was 14, a senior in high school. Okay, and someone... Uh, no, I should say I was a... I take that I was a sophomore in high school at Chapey High School in Ontario, California. Okay, well, someone came to your school and had a list of all the things that they wanted to accomplish, and you thought, I'm going to do the same thing. And so you put together a list at that young age of all the things that you wanted to accomplish. Mm -hmm. And the amazing thing that we will refer to throughout this time together is how you systematically check them all off in your life. So let's play this first clip to get this started. What I lacked in resources, I had an imagination. And... You know, when you're young, you, you don't think of obstacles. And so I thought, well, I can't think of 100 things to do, but I could think of five things. Uh, and this is my actual list that I wrote when I was 14 years old. Now, putting it in context, uh, so going to a good college, I think that's something pretty normal for a kid who's in high school. Um, but to go to the Olympics, now where did that come from? Well, it happened to be an Olympic year, and I was watching the Olympics on TV, and that might have been what inspired me. Now again, I'm going back many years, so I can't, put, I can't exactly remember what was going through my mind. But at the time, so I was watching the Olympics, and it was on ABC TV, and so I thought, well, I want to be a TV commentator. Um, and I want to become a pilot. And I didn't even know anybody who was a pilot. My mom was a school teacher, and she used to bring us to our local, the local airport, and we used to watch airplanes take off and land. And so I, I assume that is how come I wrote that down. Now, for those of you who are, uh, who are parents, or someday will be parents, think about exposing your kids. So I don't know if I would be here today if my mom hadn't brought us to the airport so I could watch airplanes take off and land. So I just love this. I love the story for so many reasons. And it's about the fact that anything can be a stimulant of your passions. Now, I'm curious, like, if we don't have someone in our life who is methodically or accidentally uh, introducing us to lots of new things, what are the things we can do ourselves to help spark our passions? Well, I think, you know, a, a, a lot of times um, people feel constrained. They're like, well, I, I need to do because somebody told me to do it or whatever. And as you get older, you tend to become less creative. And I think, you know, even, you know, kindergartners, first grade on up into high school, we tend to be very, very creative. And then we get these these bounds. And so I always tell people to think back, what times in your life were you doing things that you just loved doing them? And what are, what was it about that that you enjoyed? And for me, you know, I, I grew up in a ski area and I love to ski. So I love speed. I love the freedom of that sort of thing. And so some of that came, come, comes about. And, and so it's, 
thinking back when you were a child, what, what did you like doing? Another uh, way to explore, I mean, nowadays, of course, there's so many different courses on, on internet and they're free, right? So just explore what are something you've always been curious about? Where is a place that you've always been curious about? Or talking to different people, going at Stanford, of course, taking courses or at least visiting with a professor in an area that you absolutely knew nothing about. Now, it doesn't always mean that it's going to work. I still remember uh, I took a class at Stanford. I was... Um, I was in doing luge and I was trying to figure out the, the metallurgy of the runners, uh, which are the steels that touch the ice. And I thought and there was a lot of science behind it. I thought, you know, I'm going to take material science. That sounds really interesting. It was awful. I hated it. So I decided definitely was not going to be into material science uh, engineer. But, you know, I didn't know until I took it. You got to explore. So do you, you're obviously extremely curious and imaginative. Do you think this can be cultivated? I mean, I think one of the problems that I often talk about because I teach creativity is that we all are creative, but a lot of people are in environments where their creativity is squashed and their curiosity is squashed. They're always given assignments as opposed to allowing them to explore their own interests. How do you cultivate this? I, I think, you know, and again, I'll come back to in growing up. I read a lot. And, and reading is a way to kind of put yourself into a different environment. Um, nowadays, uh, a lot of people, you know, explore and watch different YouTube videos, will uh, just kind of put themselves into, into place and just allow them, giving themselves time. I mean, that's the thing is people get so overscheduled, um, giving yourself time, going away for a weekend, just exploring, say, this is my weekend to explore passions, things that I might be interested in, not because somebody told me to, just because I've always, it's just because. Um, I think that creativity is most definitely learned, but it is done in an environment where there are no constraints. And so you have to set yourself up into that environment. Um, and also, so not only is creativity learned, I think courage is learned. People think that, you know, you're just born courageous or something. I actually think it's the opposite. I, I think that by testing and trying and learning and putting yourself out there, um, you know, when I first started losing, I was scared of it. But once I took the first run, I'm like, wow, that wasn't so bad. I can keep doing this. And, and then I thought, well, if I can do luge, I can fly a plane. And if I can fly a plane, well, then, then, you know, I could start a company. I could do, you know, it's all different types of things. And you learn to become, you expand and realize you don't have constraints. So creativity and courage actually have the same um, areas. You just have to let yourself try. You know, it's interesting. I often uh, reflect on the fact that people say that uh, those who are courageous, it's not that they don't have fear. It's that they have fear and still do it, right? You do yeah, it despite yeah. the fear instead of saying, oh my gosh, I'm afraid I'm not going to. Uh, one of the things I'm most interested about your story is that you set a lot of intentions for yourself, whether mm -hmm. it was back when you were 14 and made this list and set some very clear intentions. And I want to talk about the role of intentions and play this mm -hmm. short clip where you talk about the, the role of dreams in shaping your life. So let's play the second clip about dreams and then talk about um, how those dreams shape the directions we go. The first tenet really that kind of guided my life is you have to have a dream for a dream to come true. People talk about dreams coming true, but have you ever stopped and thought about what are your dreams? And a lot of people, sure they have you know, some thoughts and such, but they typically hold themselves back because, well, I can't do that, I don't have enough money, or I don't, there's some, I don't, I don't, I'm, or I'm afraid I'll fail. I want you to stop for one second right now and think, 
If you were 100% guaranteed to succeed, what would you do with your life? What a brilliant question. If you knew you were going to succeed, what would you do? And I think that's such an interesting question. Um, what sort of, what's the role of intention? I mean, versus being sort of opportunistic to things that just sort of come your way. I mean, because you set these intentions so long ago, you know, how did that relate to also sort of opportunities that, that materialized that you might not have thought about? Well, um, first of all, I, you know, I, I don't want to say that, uh, well, you, that, that was an assignment actually in school. So it wasn't like I just sat down and, and when I was uh, have such forethought at the age of 14, I just said, but then once it was written down and there's something about writing things down that, and some say you'll share it with others. And, and I say, you don't need to share with others. I think it's more about just, you know, maybe it's journaling. Some people like to journal, but when you write it down, it sort of commits you or committing to yourself. And some of those things, and a lot, uh, like most of those things with the exception perhaps of, of going to a good college, were kind of way out there. I mean, I, we didn't have the means to do any of those kinds of things. But I think people think, okay, so I, Olympics is way out there. Um, but how difficult is it to just do one lesson or one, you know, if you want to, if you want to become a pilot, just, I always tell people, go take a couple of lessons, three lessons, and then you'll learn. Or if you want to be in the Olympics, well, you know, at high school, I was on the JV team in track and swimming. So I wasn't going to be, you know, I didn't think in the Olympics, but I actually did very well in field hockey. And field hockey was the path that I was going to go. And because I had written it down, I said, well, how do you actually become an Olympian in field hockey? Well, you, you know, you typically through the college process. And I was actually working my way up and made what they called the national squad, which is like the top 100 athletes. Uh, but at that time is when I was exposed to luge. And and so I thought, well, I'll do that too. And we'll just see where it, pl it plays out. And when I started Luge, I did not think, oh, I'm going to do this because I can become an Olympian. I just decided to do it because it looked like it was fun. And typically when things are fun is when you tend to be more successful. So I, I love the story. And for those people who haven't heard it, I, you had in your, in your dream, your list, that you wanted to go to the Olympics. And then there was an opportunity to be a torchbearer at the Olympics. And you thought, well, that'll get me sort of there. So you used, sort of modified your college essay, got it accepted and became a torchbearer, and then realized that really wasn't checking the box of being you know, in the Olympics, as if you were at the Olympics. <laughs> and so I love the fact that you happened to be there. And just sort of discovered luge and decided to take a little risk and try it. So I want to play this clip because I think it's really powerful about taking, as you said, really small risks. And it's about how you, you know, decided to take one lesson and that led to the next and the next. So you didn't need to have an enormous goal. You just needed a little goal to get to the next day. So let's play clip number three. When the Olympics ended, I had nothing to do and no money to do it with. Uh, and I didn't have to be back here till the end of March, and the Olympics ended in February. Uh, and thinking about that goal I had in my mind, of like, well, should I check off that I had been to the Olympics? Well, there was a sport that I saw called luge. And uh, I thought, you know, they had a beginner's camp. It was only $8. Even I could afford it. And this is another one of those things of just taking those risks and just going for it. 
So I decided to apply uh, for the camp and uh, started competing in the sport of luge. I, when I saw that, a little bit of the backstory to that is in the Olympics, um, I, one of the other torchbearers um, was a former bobsledder and he brought us to watch bobsled. And I said, I wanted to do bobsled. And he said, women are not allowed to do bobsled. They're actually banned from bobsled. Really? Um, this is back in the day. And he said, but you can do luge. So that's kind of how that story. Now that little kernel saying you can't do that um, kind of stuck with me. And then many, many years later, I mean, it was kind of like a list. Um, I went back to do bobsled and it's a very, again, it's sort of that, some of that intention. And when I did start luging, I came back to Stanford and of course I had to take winter quarter off every year, which meant I couldn't take, and this, those who are Stanford students will know this, this physics course, physics 51, physics for engineers, because I wanted to be an engineer. Uh, and I couldn't become an engineer at Stanford because I couldn't take that class. But I always said I want to be an engineer, and that's why I came back to do management science and engineering 25 that years engineering later. Degree. So I got that engineering degree. <laughs> that's so great. Now, um, I'm, I want to remind the students who are watching that you can start asking questions anytime. Start, we'll start collecting them and voting them up and down and see which ones you want, to, you want answered by Bonnie. Um, I want to ask you, at what point after you started taking one, two, three luge lessons, you know, when you were sort of just hanging out after the Olympics, did you say, you know, actually, I'm pretty good at this and I could really exceed, succeed? Well, yeah, I think, uh, remember at that time I was, uh, I was also doing field hockey and this is another one of those lessons in taking risks. You try to overlap things. And so when I took my first lesson, I was just doing it because it was fun. But um, sports and actually many different uh, occupations in life, there's a certain sort of mental mentality or physical capabilities that you one one kind of needs. So, for example, I can never be a gymnast because I'm too big to be a gymnast. I could be a basketball player because I'm too small to be a basketball player. But in 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 luge, there's a certain quality um, where you need to have strong upper body skill, and you also need to be. I guess fearless is a way of saying it. You respect, we respect fear, but you're, you're able to relax. So being able to really relax under pressure because the sleds do not have shock absorbers and your body is the uh, shock absorber. So you have to be relaxed going 80 miles an hour. And that is a, a skill or a, a capability that I had. And so because of, because of my physique, my strength and sort of my mentality, I was told very quickly within the first week uh, and I can tell people, I've, I've coached thousands of kids uh, in the sport, and I can literally tell now, even within their first day, whether or not they would have the capabilities of being good. Doesn't mean they will be, and it'll take many years to be good. But I had those raw uh, capabilities to be good, and enough people told me that I thought, aha, I could do this. So, you know, I went back to Stanford, but then I, I pursued that over the course of the next two years, parallel to field hockey, and ultimately, uh, I ended up making the Olympic team, let's see, three and a half years from that, from that time that I first started. So it took three and a half years. So the next Olympics. The next Olympics, yes. Isn't that amazing? I mean, if someone had told you when you were a torchbearer that the next Winter Olympics, you were going to be competing in luge. I would have never, ever, ever imagined that. And that's why I think for people, you know, kids who say, I want to be in the NBA or they want to be a doctor or a lawyer or a pilot or whatever, you know, you just that seems so far away, but the first steps don't. And that's the thing I just keep, I keep telling you, just take the first steps. If you want to be an entrepreneur, just go out and start. 
just go out and try. Um, because, you know, I, I say this often, and you can't win the lottery of life if you don't enter. Yeah, just, people often ask me about writing books because I've written yeah. about the books and I like, just write a table of contents, you know? Yes. Just write the introduction, just write something, you know? The only way to do it is to just do it. So um, I love this. I mean, your fearlessness. My, my, one of my favorite, though, clips is the one we're going to play next about your crazy confidence. I mean, here you were, you know, you'd taken two weeks of luge training, whatever classes. It's like, you know, I don't know, crazy taking two weeks of, of classes. And then you decide to go to Germany to train with some of the best luge coaches in the world. And you show up there like, okay, I'm here. And what happened? So let's play this clip about, you know, the failing and failing until you succeeded. So this is uh, the clip number four. I showed up in Germany and uh, didn't know a whole lot of German. I tried to explain that I was just a beginner, but they figured I came all the way from the US, so I must be good. One of the best in America. I didn't even know who one of the best in America was. Um, so they uh, put me in with a German national team, and I proceeded to crash. I only had two weeks in the sport. I obviously figured it out pretty quickly. Um, I uh, crashed 52 times in a row. Um, no, it's, you don't get too hurt in the sport. It looks, it does look crazy, but if you, uh, when you crash, you actually only fall this far off because the sled is that close to the ice, even with a centrifugal force. But I was so determined, and the coaches had mercy on me, or else I would kill myself, they thought. Um, but then, really, but I had the confidence, and I wasn't going to leave. Uh, and because of that confidence, they kept coaching me. And by the time I finished that three months, I came back and became the best in the U.S. Pretty remarkable. And so, listen, I mean, is this sort of the fake it till you make it approach? I mean, is that what this is about? Um, or is this you know, just keep, I mean, what, how would you view this, your philosophy here? I would say that, that, that um, first of all, I would not be successful had they not helped me. And so, you know, you need others to be, uh, to help you along. And um, so I think the way I look at it is confidence is contagious. So if you believe in yourself, others will. And so if the fake it till you make it piece was, I was shaking inside. I was scared because I, you know, I kept crashing. Um, but I, on the outside, I wouldn't show that I was scared. If I, you know, when I go do a talk, even though I've done so many of these talks and in front of thousands of people, I'm shaking inside before I get up onto the podium and talk, but people don't see that on the outside. And so they'll see this strong, confident person. And it's that, so that's the part, right? Is you just need to convey that confidence and then they reflect it back. If I'm confident in myself, they become confident in me, which then makes me feel more confident. It's that virtuous, wonderful cycle. Um, and so that's, that's really what happened is they, um, they took me under their wing. They saw I wasn't gonna quit. Um, and they, they were determined to help me. Now, of course, they figured I would never beat them, but I made that my internal goal that I would then beat the Germans someday. Um, and I did. So, but that, that took a, another couple of Olympics. <laughs> so, uh, that, fabulous. So I'm just looking at the questions from the students. They're starting to roll in. So one of them says, I'm reading a book about discovering your strengths. Mm -hmm. Underline what you say about success naturally coming with what's fun and fits your personality. But when do you know that you found your strengths and decide to go with something? Like, when do you know there's a match between like, okay, I'm actually good at this and it's fun. And, you know, how, is this something, what's that process like? 
Well, there's two parts to it because you can be very, very, very good at something, um, but not passionate about it. And if you aren't passionate about it, then you probably long-term will not be successful because ultimately in, in most uh, uh, endeavors, I say it's about 10,000 hours. And although maybe I compressed it over four years, it was a lot of hours of training and you have to really like it. And so, um, you know, go test these things out, see if you have some natural skill. If you really like it, you just can't wait to get to practice or you can't wait to get to class or you just can't wait, wait to learn more about that. And so you start getting into a flow. Um, and there's a book called Flow, which I highly recommend um, people read. It's, it really helps you think. And when you're, when you're in flow of something, that is something where ultimately you could be very good if you match that up within the skills that you develop. So um, a lot of people um, are super curious, and I, I'm not sure if this is two things that they're conflating or whether this is true. This, they're worried about the balance between saying yes and taking risks and then getting overcommitted and overwhelmed. So are, that, are those uh, opposite sides of the spectrum or are those different things? Um, well, if, if there were an, um, one of my challenges, I mean, we all have, as my mother used to say, you have your, you all have our assets and liabilities. Just hope you, that you, you know, build upon your assets and, and uh, take care of your liabilities. So one of my liabilities is I do take on too much. Um, and so I'm always having to kind of, okay, what can I load shed? What can I drop off? Um, because it is easy to go off in 27 different directions, but you do have to check yourself and begin focusing. But, you know, and, and Tina, you do a lot in design thinking. And so there's this thing called you flare and then focus and then flare and then focus. Yep. And so in that exploration phase, it's flare. It's like all those post-it notes that are behind you in your background, put out all kinds of different ideas and explore. Find those things where you both have a passion and some skill and then start focusing on it. And, and I also think of doing things in chapters in, in life. So, you know, one chapter is a student and another chapter is an athlete. Another chapter is a TV reporter. Another chapter is becoming an airline pilot. And as passion maybe wanes in one area, you begin picking up in another area. Um, and so I think it's just you real life is too short to not love what you're doing. Um, and so the moment you feel, hmm, Maybe I've been doing this too long. Maybe I should do something else. That's the time to flare again and start exploring other items, other areas. And then you can start latching on things and do things in parallel to de-risk it a little bit. And then you can move on to the next, the next area. So I love that answer. And in fact, uh, one of the questions sort of builds on that is, listen, you know, I love getting inspired and coming to events like this and, and uh, writing in my journal about my ideas, but then I've got to do work. And how do I balance, you know, being inspired and, and having my dreams versus the things I actually have to do? And I think one of the things you talk about is doing things in parallel. And um, can you talk a little bit about how um, you started as a pilot when you were a newscaster and, and how you were able to transition from one to the other? Because I yeah. think that's an interesting example. Yeah, so I, um, uh, so I was at Stanford uh, and I originally uh, had planned on being an engineer, as I had mentioned. Um, and turns out I couldn't become an engineer and I, I remembered my list, but I also was taking different classes and I had explored. I was in that flaring phase. Well, if I can't be an engineer, what do I want to be? And I took a wonderful class in um, film and broadcast and I really enjoyed it. Uh, and I was going, leading into, I was graduating, leading into ultimately uh, ended up majoring in communication and, and I was uh, graduating and going to another Olympics and the local TV station, KGO TV in San Francisco came down to interview me and he said, so what are you going to do after the Olympics? Um, what's your job going to be? And I said, I want to work for you. 
And he said, oh, okay, uh, would you like to uh, file some stories from the Olympics, which I did. So that was my entree into, into television. I was doing that for several years, finally, finally earning some money. Um, and I remembered, it's like, look, I really want to learn to fly. So now I had money. I was just going to do it as a hobby. Wasn't going to be a career. And I started flying, uh, at an airport near, near Stanford in Palo Alto and very quickly moved to teaching flying. So now I'm during the day, I'm a TV reporter. And during the evenings and weekends, I'm a flight instructor. Uh, and then one weekend, and the news director called me and he said he wanted me to come into work. And I would have had to cancel several of my students. And I thought to myself, and, you know, I would make five times as much working the day as a TV reporter, but I loved teaching the students. I loved flying. And that's when I realized it was time for me to change careers. It didn't happen instantly. Um, but I, I started spending more and more time in building my hours and experience while I was at the TV station. So that's that overlap. And once I uh, achieved enough hours, worked some corporate jobs. I ended up getting hired, and I was a United pilot for 13 years. But isn't so amazing? First of all, I think you skipped over this wonderful little point at the beginning where this person, you know, the, in the media, basically said, "What are you going to do next?" And you said, "I want to work for you." I mean, the boldness of saying that. I mean, first of all, if you hadn't said that the opportunity never would have existed. Now, it doesn't exactly. mean if you always ask, if I say, hey, Bonnie, I want to work for you. Hey, Bonnie, I want to work for you. <laughs> I'm saying it publicly. Like, yes. say, sure, it might not happen, but if you don't say it. Well, again, you, have to, you have to enter the lottery of life to win. And, you know, I had a degree in it. Uh, and, you know, I was graduating. I actually had a skill in that I was going to be doing something Olympics and they were going to be sending a crew to the Olympics. So I had taken some courses in it. So it wasn't completely out of the, out of the realm of possibilities. Um, but I hadn't actually thought of asking him until he asked me that question. Um, and I will say this for the, for the women in the audience. Um, it's interesting, uh, and studies have, have shown this, that women, when they see a, a job to apply for, they tend not to apply until they are 100% confident that they meet all the qualifications and they can do the job. Whereas men tend to apply earlier. And so, you know, I always tell people, raise your hand, raise your hand, apply for jobs, apply for jobs, apply for jobs that you think that you're not ready for. Go for that promotion when maybe you're not ready for it. And I often thought I was ready for a promotion when I wasn't. And eventually I did get there. So it's, it's you know, raise your hand, just lean in. Pick me, pick me. Yeah. Okay. So uh, we've got a question about the uh, airline industry. So, mm -hmm. wow, COVID, pandemic. Yeah. Where do you see the future of the airline industry? I mean, what, what's going to happen? What do you think? Well, I think, you know, in, in part, and you saw, obviously, um, not only the U.S. government, but most governments around the world um, see the, the airline industry as part of both national security and part of the economy. And so, uh, people will always need to fly. Um, and so there will be airline travel right now. It's only if you most, in most cases, it's if you need to not just doing it, uh, more. So leisure travel is a, a little off, um, uh, and business travel, a lot of businesses are saying that, well, they're not going to travel till there's vaccines or whatever, but, but there, we're starting to see sparks for people coming back. And you know what? Uh, the industry is adapting too, putting in a lot of safety measures, social distancing, et cetera. And, and people are, are managing themselves uh, better as well by masks. So um, this is a time it was, a, I was a pilot during 9-11 um, and 
you know, that was a that was an incredibly challenging time as well. People were very afraid to fly. I was a captain uh, at the time, and um, I decided to. Uh, I was actually on leave because I was competing in bobsled this time because I did finally go back to compete in bobsled. I came off of leave to fly because I felt it was important. I was a mother. Uh, as a female, and I felt if, and so I started flying the very first day after uh, we were allowed to fly again, just to be out there, to be a public face, to be a figure, because the airlines very quickly had adapted on security uh, to address the challenges of what happened in 9-11, and just, just the same, the industry is adapting very much around safety. Um, so when you think of safety and security as it adapts. So it will take time um, before to get back to the same levels, call it three, four, five years. Um, but this is also a time for industries to adapt, industries to innovate. That's what we're doing here. I run the venture arm for JetBlue, uh, finding new ways to innovate. Uh, how do we continue to make it even safer? So I, I'm very bullish on the industry. It just takes time. So what kind of innovations are you seeing? I mean, obviously there's ones around safety and sanitation, mm -hmm. but what other interesting um, innovations are you seeing? Yeah, so we, I have my team, I have an awesome team, and uh, we run these things called innovation sprints. Uh, and um, who would have thought that there would be a need to go out and find how do you use UV, UV light to kill germs on an aircraft? But we went out and found all the different startups that might be doing that. Um, uh, we've looked into, you know, everything from the health passports that are out there. How do you do contact, tra contact tracing? Because that's now going to be uh, a federal mandate. How do you track people coming in from it, um, and manage privacy and all of that? So, you know, there's a lot of different companies exploring that. So we're able to surface all of those. We're also um, in the middle of doing a, an innovation sprint, call it where we flare, find all the different uh, startups, not the big, large public companies, but the, the quick and nimble startups that are um, evolving, coming up solutions in contactless travel. So the fewer times you actually have to touch something, whether it be a, a kiosk or um, going through security or the you know your a, a ticket or um, anything through the travel experience, how can we remove those barriers so that you can go through with your phone, which you're used to carrying, and that's yours, got your own little germs on it, and that's it, and we don't nobody else wants to touch it. So how can you move through the entire travel experience with just your own um, devices? So we're doing quite a bit of exploration in that right now. Very interesting. Very, very interesting. And for any entrepreneurs, actually, we have, to, we have a challenge out there. So they can go to JetBlueVentures.com and take a look at our, our latest Medium post about it. And it explains how to submit your ideas into our, into our innovation sprint. Well, who knows? Maybe someone in this class will end up uh, winning that challenge. So um, one of the things that a number of people are curious about is, wow, you are so impressive in the number of things that you've done and the number of things you often do at the same time. Can you talk a little bit about your time management strategies? You know, what does a typical day, week, month look like that you're allowed to, uh, that you're able to accomplish so much? Well, I, um, first of all, I, I, I do think it's important. Yes, I do a lot and I'm very busy. And part of it is, and my husband says my hobby is my work. I love what I do. So I don't consider it work. In fact, if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. So in part, it's again, it's getting to that flow. Um, and so I, I love what I do. Um, also building a good team is really important. So the people um, that you work with are incredibly important. Uh, and so part of this is, is um, 
yes, I work more than a 40 hour week. I work more than 50 hour week, probably a 60 hour week. And I do that over and over and over again um, because I love what I do. But also it um, by building in a, in a great team, you're able to delegate things. So I, I, as soon as I, part of, part of what I enjoy doing is coaching and developing people. And so as people build a skill, I can take what I'm doing and then now they can do it. And that frees me up to go do more and something else. So it's constantly, and then they like doing that. So that stretches that that person and that skill. So, you know, it's a force multiplier to have, have a great team. Um, so that that's part of it. Um, and then I do spend, uh, you know, family's important. And so I do spend time, I do spend time with family. So I pretty much, you know, I'll take, uh, I don't need to do new explorations outside of my work and family at this point, because now I'm really focused on giving back. Um, so those are, those are the things that I do and how I fill my time is family, work, giving back, and of course, doing some working out. I'd like to do more of that. I should uh -huh. be doing more of that. So <laughs> okay, maybe there's another Olympics in your yes. Place. So, um, one of the questions is: Okay, uh, you have demonstrated these amazing leadership skills. Are these similar skills that you look for in those founders who are coming to pitch you? Yes, absolutely. And I, you know, I'm just going to keep coming back to: If you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. Um, I, you know, you typically when we invest in early stage startups. We invest in the entrepreneurs more than the idea. How do they? How are they incredibly passionate about what they do? Remember, their confidence is is contagious. So are they incredibly confident um, in what they're doing? Do they love what they're doing? They 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 work all day long because they want to because they're just so passionate about their ideas. Um, and this is why there's you know you have serial entrepreneurs because they learn they find something they find a problem they get passionate about it. So. Most of all, I will be looking for people's passion and then also for the team. And it is a pretty rare, it's not impossible. And we have invested in startups where there's a, a, just one founder, but usually it's a co-founders, co a team um, and the team that they build uh, underneath them. So um, because we just believe team is so important. So those are the kind of the things we look for. So, you know, this is your story is so amazing and people are wondering about whether you need to pick a few things this is kind of the flare and focus yes do you need to pick a few things that you're going to go deep into and 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 when do you decide that you finish flaring and you're ready to focus yeah i mean well this is this is i mean again i'm just gonna i'll, I'll, I'll repitch your books and 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 your ideas and there's some of the stuff at the d school and everything learning about flaring and focus because this flare and focus idea is not just just for your own life. It's for your business business. It's for your startups. It's for for everything. And so there's there's a there's a time in life to flare, and there's times where where it is to focus. Um, I think when flare, yes, I, I believe that people focus in too soon, too early, and cut out things. Um, so I I actually encourage people to flare for a little longer, um, and because you want to explore these ideas um, that you become passionate about. Uh, and so, I mean, I would have never thought of luge. I didn't even know what that was when I was, so it just wouldn't have, I wouldn't have thought of it. I, I didn't even think of becoming an airline pilot. I thought about, I want to become a pilot. Um, and so it's, you just, you have to explore and test these things and test many of them. And, and then once you find what you find, you need to really focus. So when I, when I went over to Germany, I was seriously focusing um, on the sport of luge. I just went all in. That's part of the reason why I went there. And then, you know, I did, I did three Olympics. Uh, uh, when I, um, 
during the summertime, I was doing the TV and I was then learning to fly. And then the opportunity came up for the, the job at United. And I remember I was going to go, I was going to the interview and I knew they were going to ask me because this was in, this was 1990 prior to the 1992 Olympics. And, you know, if you're going, it's kind of like going to an airline is kind of like going to the military. You don't really have a choice of your schedule if you're junior or anything. And I was like, well, I know they're going to ask me if I would quit the Olympics to do this. And I, I was at that point in my life that I loved flying so much that, yeah, I would. Now I was going to hope that I didn't. And of course I didn't have to, you know, I was very supportive and I, I did compete in the next Olympics, um, but I didn't do as well. And I remember my coach telling me, Bonnie, your head's in the clouds. My head was in the clouds because I love flying so much. And so that was that time to make that jump. And so I, even though the next Olympics was only two years later, so they actually changed the schedule at that time. They, they were at the same time as same year as the, as the summer Olympics. And then they changed it. So the next Olympics from 92 was 94. No other athletes retired because they wanted to do one more Olympics. And I very easily could have, but um, I was ready to become a full-time pilot. So I love this because what were you talking about is you're doing one thing and then you sort of have, it's almost like a relay race that, you know, the next yes. thing is sort of uh, speeding up. And then when you're ready, you sort of switch gears as opposed to feeling like you need to jump and have nothing that yeah. you're constantly sort of weaving things together. And then it ends up becoming seamless transitions. Yes. Mm -hmm. Now, some, There are times when you do have to like, no kidding, jump. Um, uh, but, uh, and you just have to have confidence that it's the right choice. Yeah. One of the things that, uh, you said reminded me of something that I always say, which is before something is your passion, it's something you know nothing about. Yes, and exactly. that you need to realize that, you know, you can be out in the world saying, I don't know what I'm passionate about, but unless you start exploring, you're never going to figure it out. Yeah. And there's a reason why people, you know, in, whether it's for those that, who are in the class um, or other college students that are out there that you're required to take breath. There's a reason for that because, you, you know, that's kind of a force to go out and test all these things. But after, even after you're graduated in college and you're in, in, in uh, life and if you're an entrepreneur, it's go test di different ideas, a whole bunch of different ideas to see what sticks um, and what you're passionate about. So speaking of flying, uh, one of the people on, in the class asked, did you ever consider joining the Air Force and flying some super fast planes? <laughs> um, I did, um, but, but uh, I did not have 2020 uncorrected vision. Um, that was required uh, at the time. Um, I think they now accept if, uh, um, some waivers on it. Uh, and even when I started to become an airline pilot, they had just relaxed it enough uh, I think I had 2070 vision. Um, and so I was able to, to get into, into the airline. So yeah, sometimes remember what I said, you know, there are certain things, whether it's a sport or a profession where there are certain raw attributes that you must have. I, I'm just never going to be a gymnast because I'm just not the size of a gymnast. I'm never going to be a basketball player. Well, I wasn't ever going to be an air force pilot because I didn't have 2020 vision. Now that's changed, but I didn't then. So speaking of constraints, uh, there are some questions about, um, whether you ever felt a glass ceiling. Of course, it sounds like you did with regard to bobsled and then you found your way around it. Mm -hmm. um, are there other places where being a woman in a leadership role uh, you found to be challenging in some way? Well, you know, I, I, I can kind of look through my life and um, most of the jobs that I've had, uh, whether it was um, as an athlete and then, you know, bobsled where women couldn't do it and then ultimately I found a way or Sports reporter. I, I was a sports reporter. There's not a lot of female sports reporters, particularly then. Um, and then a pilot. Not that many female pilots. There's about 5% uh, 
um, of pilots are female. It was a lot less uh, when I started. And then venture capitalists, there's not a lot of female there. And I don't go into things because I'm going to break some kind of gender barrier. I go into it because I want to, because I like to, like to. And if you feel there's a barrier, you will become your own barrier. Um, and yes, there are times where you just have to try harder, perhaps. Um, I remember, you know, getting in a, in, in a cockpit way back in the day and, and I could tell that the, the captain, I was a, I was a first officer and, and, um, he didn't, he didn't think that women could be good pilots. Well, I'm like, right, I'm going to show this guy. Cause you know what? The airplane doesn't know if you're a male or a female. Um, and ultimately, you know, build everybody's confidence. So I, I it's, you know, sometimes you have to try a little harder, but I'm going to keep coming back. The biggest barrier is typically yourself is if you don't have confidence yourself, it's hard for others to have people to have confidence in you. But the reverse is all through. If you have confidence in yourself or display confidence, even if you're shaking inside, you display that confidence, others will, and it becomes a virtuous cycle. And so I think for women, it's just lean in and just do it. So uh, speaking of leaning in and just doing it, I mean, you went from being a pilot then to being a venture capitalist. I mean, mm-hmm. that's a huge shift. How did you learn the world of VC? Um, well, I'm still learning. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, VCs are lifelong um, learning. Well, I, I've been at JetBlue now for 16 years. So I started as a pilot. I left United as a pilot. I became a pilot at JetBlue because I... JetBlue was a startup and I just wanted to do something entrepreneurial and it just was a nice transition. And, and uh, I also wanted to do more and also, and I worked in a lot of different departments uh, in uh, at JetBlue besides becoming a pilot and ultimately became the head of talent. Talent is something that I'm very passionate about coaching, helping people, developing people. So that was my role. Um, and in it also we had sort of the strategy team. And so when JetBlue was thinking about um, expanding a business model and becoming, because uh, you know it's started to become a big company. How do you maintain that innovative spirit? One of the ways to do that is is through venture capital. So I, they, but they came to the strategy team and said, well, what are some different ideas? And that was one of them. And uh, you know, in the venture world, as you know, a lot of it is about the network. And I already had a network. It's um, out on the West Coast, and of course. JetBlue's on the East Coast, and I was really excited to be able to move back. And so, you know, volunteered uh, and then tapped into, um, you know, all the different friends that I have, uh, you, including you, uh, Tina, and many others. Um, and part of it is about building a team. So I said I would do it, but only if I would be able to hire um, a, a managing director who was an experienced VC. And so that's where we, in corporate VC, a lot of times you'll take someone like myself who I know the industry very well, but I don't know venture, um, or you'll take a venture a venture capitalist who wants to be, do corporate VC, but they don't know the corporate side. So it's really a match of two. And remember I said, it's all about a team. Um, and so bringing on that team. So I um, brought in uh, Raj Singh, who's an experienced uh, VC. Uh, and then my background is all in operations. And so brought on another managing director who came from the commercial side of the, of the industry. So we have an awesome team. Um, and so I'm constantly learning. I mean, uh, Raj is constantly, te- you know, every every year or so we do term sheet 101 with our team. And we have because we have new analysts coming in and we're always teaching people, uh, you know, how do you and I learn every single time. So I'm super curious and I'm sure other people are as well. What have been some interesting things you've invested in, you know, given your knowledge about the airline industry and the opportunity to invest for the future? Sure. So, uh, you know, we we invest in not just aviation. We invest broadly in travel. 
Um, but I am an aviation nerd at heart. Um, I love flying my, you know, my, of course, you know, uh, we have 27 different startups and they're all my, they're all my children and I don't want to have a favorite child, but people do know that I love aviation. So we have a startup named Joby, Joby Aviation, which is, um, building, uh, electric air taxis called eVTOLs, electric vertical takeoff and landing. It's the leading, there's about 30, uh, 300 companies around the world now, um, that are, that are building these, but Joby's the lead. Uh, in it, we expect uh, to be FA certified 2023, probably in commercial operations. Uh, and they're in Santa Cruz, so very close. Um, and also have have a, a office in San Carlos. So there's uh, that one I'm super excited about because we're literally have a seat at the table and helping evolve. I think I look at electric propulsion um, to transform aviation, just like jet propulsion did back in the 60s. Uh, so this is the next change. It's it's about sustainability. It's about urban mobility. It's about getting rid of traffic jams. Um, imagine if you could go from San Jose to San Francisco in 15 minutes for the same cost of what it would take for an Uber or less. Um, so this is all possible. So that that that's super exciting. I'm also really excited. We have several startups um, who are taking the massive amounts of data uh, that are uh, whether it's in the hospitality industry, travel industry, uh, airline industry, and then uh, marketing, analytics, massive amount of data and applying machine learning to it. I think it's using, taking machine learning and applying those algorithms to be useful because there's so much data in our, in our industry, but it's all been trapped in these legacy servers and everything. So pulling it up into the cloud, applying the, the algorithms and everything from revenue management to better schedule planning to better marketing, um, uh, all of these areas are um, are things that we're working on. So I'm pretty excited about those as well. I could go on and on, but uh, uh, I... Uh, Can we find exciting. out these things if we look at the JetBlue website? Yes, just go to JetBlueVentures.com. And when you go there, you're also... Here's something for everybody. When you go onto our website, it'll pop up. We do a newsletter. And this, again, I'm going to talk about team and evolving teams. So we send out a newsletter um, every two weeks. Uh, and it's what, it, what it's curated by my team. We have a Slack channel and we see cool articles in travel and we curate it. And it's what is going on around the world in travel and travel tech that is new and exciting and interesting. And it helps you keep abreast of what's going on. So I well, that is so cool. to do that. So I have one final question I'm going to ask. Mm -hmm. What is the best leadership advice you've ever been given? Um, I'm going to come back to, uh, you know, sort of some of the themes that I've talked already. And again, my mother always talked about the assets and liabilities. I think it's really important for a leader to know where are their strengths and to lean into those strengths. Um, but really to know where their areas of opportunity are as well. What, um, know what you don't know and build an awesome team around that. So, um, uh, it's, it's about building a team and it's also about helping people grow and develop. Um, so we have a, our team and, and some of the junior members will spend three, four, five years with us. They'll, they'll move out into, uh, into the industry and they're, they're friends of what JTV would call it. So it's, it's team. It's, you can't do this alone. It's team. The Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series is a Stanford eCorner original production. The stories and lessons on Stanford eCorner are designed to help you find the courage and clarity to see and seize opportunities. Stanford eCorner is led by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program 
and Stanford's Department of Management Science and Engineering. To learn more, please visit us at ecorner.stanford.edu.